The following program is sponsored by Evangelical Life Ministries. Welcome to Liberty Action Alert with Greg Seltz. Sponsored by our friends at the Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty here in Washington, D.C. A program that cuts through the chaos and confusion in the culture today by talking to kingdom citizenship, bold biblical principles for a robust public Christian life. And now your host, Dr. Greg Sells. Good day, good day, Washington, D.C., and friends of the program all across the country. I'm Greg Seltz. Welcome to Liberty Action Alert. Today on our program, we are privileged to have Jameson Coppola, who is the Director of Government Affairs at the American Association of Christian Schools. And and Jameson's a guy that I've been working with on the Hill now for the five years we've been in D.C., and they, they folks are fighting uh, for our parochial schools because there are challenges out there. Welcome, Jameson. Greg, thanks so much. Glad to be with you today. Well, Jameson, you know, I, I believe this, and I've been telling our people that schools are at the front lines of the culture wars, and our culture, we know, has been moving to this therapeutic indoctrination model of education, which is radically different than what we support. You know, that, that education is a support or is a pursuit of truth. It, there's It's a moral virtuous formation and I'm just shocked at how the values and moral virtues that undergird a solid Christian education are now considered nefarious teachings in our country, at least by some. And so I guess my first question is, is that the lay of the land out there? I mean, what do you see legislatively or culturally that ought to concern us? And and the, I'm speaking about those of us who value a solid parochial education for the sake of our children. Yeah, um, I don't think you're overstating the case, Greg, at all. And I don't think it's well, just a... Uh, I got to say that he does... Uh, folks, listen, he just said this. This is a guy who does this all the time, every day in the educational world. And he says, I'm not overstating this because sometimes I think people do think we are. And it's pretty scary sometimes in that in that arena, correct? Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's just a matter of confirmation bias. You know, sometimes you... you you see what you look for. I don't think that's it because there's tangible things happening that kind of uh, outline the the battlefield, if you will, of uh, for the minds of, of citizens, but especially minds of children. Right. And I don't think you have to look very hard to see those things. You and I were chatting earlier about the fact that we both have schools that are in our uh, our purview on, on in our groups that you know, have been uh, sued and judges and federal courts have come back and said, well, just the very fact that you're tax exempt means that the government supports you and therefore you have to follow our regulations. You have to follow our rules as it relates to these new definitions of human sexuality. And so I I think you and I could probably spend the entire time on the show just giving specific illustrations of this. Um, but I think, yeah, um, so that, let me just say to our people that so the Baltimore Lutheran schools have just been hit with that. And that's why it's it, it comes home to us because we've got twenty two hundred schools, you know, and then you said that you're dealing with school, a school of yours out in California. And again, like yeah. you said, they again, t- folks, 
church and school, the parochial school system was meant to be tax exempt so that the government couldn't coerce us. We're the natural balance against a tyrannical government. That's what the church in in the public sphere is all about. That's how the founding fathers understood us. That's why we're tax exempt. We're not tax exempt to get a special deal from the government. We're tax exempt to be a moral voice that keeps the government in check. And now they're using this ridiculous logic that being tax exempt means you're supported by the government. So again, what talk a little bit about the case that you're dealing with out in California. Yeah, well, there's a philosophical part of it, like you said, that you know we want uh, men's minds to be free and specifically free of their religious conscience, right? The right. founders are clear about that. But there's a practical aspect to it too, Greg, and that is the value that our schools and our churches provide to the community. I'll give you a quick anecdote. You know, we were building a new building when I was a school administrator, oh, 15 years ago. And we had just this huge fight with the city who didn't want to let us use our land the way we wanted to use it. They wanted to nitpick every aspect of it. And they wanted to put us into this development agreement. And I chafed at this because they wrote in there that they were providing consideration of us building on our own land And because we were tax-exempt church school, that we were not providing anything of material good back to the city. And I thought, man, if they calculated the number of families that don't need social services because we're helping them raise good children, if they calculated the number of men that are not going to spend their night in the drunk tank, if they calculate the number of children that are learning how to read and write and will be productive citizens, we're providing a ton of value back to the community. So tax-exempt status recognizes that individuals, these mediating institutions, as we call them, church and uh, school, uh, insulate the individual from the government and provide a service to the community that really is priceless. And so it's a really small cost for a a government to provide tax exempt for the amount of good that our schools and and churches do to the community. So there's the philosophical side and the practical side, both with this issue. Yeah. And, you know, there was a book, I can't recall it right now, but it was a, a study of the city of Philadelphia and what um, non-for-profits, especially church organizations provided. And, and they did this study and they said it was, it's, it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars worth of services that, and if they disappeared, there would be no government services that could keep up with them right. because not only are they uh, services provided, but they're provided at such low cost because people do it many times out of the goodness of their, of right. their faith. Missional. We yeah. They're missional. Yeah. They're missional and, and with a service mindset, whereas the government comes in and says, pay us. And the reality is if you did it, you would gut the city services in, in a way that would cripple the city. And this was a psycholo- yeah. I think it was a sociological study. So it wasn't a particularly Christian study. And so, yeah, again, to that philosophically, practically, but where did this where did this aggressive government? I mean, that's what we're facing right now. They think of the the parochial school system as something that's in the way of where they want to go. Yeah, and that's the way you know it. In some senses, always have been. You know, um, our, our schools sit at the crossroads of many of these cultural issues, right? right. So. As something on the order. Well, before COVID, I have to clarify our, our comments on this. Before COVID, about 90% of all students were public ed- publicly educated and yeah. about 10% were either in private schools or homeschooled. Now, COVID, I think, is going to change that ratio. You know, depending on who you read, it may be upwards of now 15% 
of all students are in public, uh, I'm sorry, private or homeschool situations. Okay. Um, but we're at that weird intersection where most people expect that society is transmitting its values through schools, right, to the next right. generation. Most of that's done in the public school, but here are our religious schools, religiously motivated. We 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 are, we have commandedness. You know, our religion um, tells us that we're supposed to train our children according to the precepts of Scripture, right. and um, and so we do, right? So it's a two sided uh, equation for us. We're commanded to do it, and we do it willingly because we believe it's the truth. And now government is saying, not only are we going to control the the eighty five or ninety percent of the of how kids are taught in the public school, but we're going to come in and enter into that um, 10 or 15% of those people that are, are religiously motivated educating their students. And we're to tell you how you have to do it according to our principles, according to our standards, according to our new definitions of morality. And so right. our battle, you, you and I, what we do on the Hill is constantly be a voice to say, at the very least, the Constitution protects our rights to educate differently. To to um, to make those statements about the good, the true, the beautiful that you mentioned, to pass those values on to our kids, and so that's where our organization is. That's where I know you are at at the crossroads of how far can society go to dictate to us what we must teach to our children's children, and how much liberty will we retain under the Constitution to teach a different way from at least a significant portion of our society. Well, and, and let's just be clear about this. When you use those, you know, 85 percent public, most people think this is the way it's always been. Public's always been secular. And now we have these these unique religious schools. I think, again, people need to understand that the parochial system was was fundamental to America. I mean, until and not too long ago. I mean, John Dewey's the guy keeps coming into my head where he started to secularize the schools. But I I understand. But parochial education was the norm at the founding. And I think even today, there are people who think, well, the Ten Commandments, they teach the same things in public school that they when it comes to the commandments and the moral structure of things, they teach the same thing over there that we teach in our schools because the schools, parochial schools are not unique because of our moral view. It's unique because of the view of the gospel and salvation. And so, you know, that's not what's taught in public school, but we always assumed that the same basic moral teachings, you know, honor your father and your mother, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit. Those things were kind of fundamentally taught there because the founding fathers said, if you have any law in society that fundamentally disagrees with with the laws of God, it cannot be a just law. So that's how a lot of our people think. They'd be shocked to realize, wouldn't wouldn't you say, what's being taught about the moral structure in, in public schools today? Yeah, again, I don't think you have to look far for examples of, um, you know, those ideas that we talk about, honor your father and mother, that children are a blessing, not a curse, that there should be respect for uh, those that God's put into authority, all those ideas that that we think are common and fundamental. I don't think you have to go very far to look for illustrations in society where that's no longer true. I mean, uh, I live in a state, I live in Virginia where parents and parental rights, um, not in a religious context, but just their rights to have input in what their kids are taught in in, uh, public school and, and to be informed about whether or not their child was adopting a new sexual identity um, to to make sure that the curriculum was not explicit about um, um, n- not just even 
what we might call normal sex education, but a sex education into LGBTQ identities. Like all of those issues were huge for people because they, they said, listen, we're, we don't even have them put into our kids' public education anymore. Right. And so I don't think you have to look very far to say that those values and those ideas that were common in our founding and common probably all, all the way up until maybe you know, 60, 70 years ago are no longer the leading values in our public education system or no longer the basis for, for even writing our regulation and legislation any longer. Well, well, what are some, I mean, I know on the page, I, you know, it's on your webpage and and by the way, you can go ahead and give out your webpage so people can get to know more about what you do. Um, But I saw something on the Equality Act and I know the Respect for Marriage Act is going to take up some of those issues. What are some, again, remind our people again, why these issues, they they seem like, you know, I hear people say, oh, they're not going to affect our churches and schools because we're exempt. And I keep saying to them, if the culture starts to define the alternative views of these policies as bigoted hate speech. They won't need to legislate us out of business. They will, they will just, you know, the societal pressure to push us out of business will be so great. And there will be lawsuits and things that come alongside of those things as well. Um, talk about some of those kinds of issues. Yeah. The, the equality act I think has, has kind of um, faded a bit in favor yeah. of what is right now an active bill that does a lot of, uh, what the Equality Act, I think, would have tried to accomplish. And it's called uh, the Respect for Marriage Act. Right. Now, a lot of people that believe in traditional marriage have taken to call it the Disrespect for Marriage Act mm-hmm. um, because of what it does to those uh, institutions and individuals that, that hold to traditional, natural, biblical marriage and the definitions that we see, um, not just in Holy Scripture, but also in nature. Uh, male, female, you know, union for procreation, for the the rearing of children, for the preservation of uh, posterity and society. A- again, you know, if you want to talk about some of the harms, it creates a private right of action. Um, I, I mentioned this in a meeting. I don't know, uh, Greg, if you were there, but I mentioned this in a meeting. One of the accusations <clears throat> our founders made against the king that he was unjust, that he was an unjust ruler of a free people was that he harassed them into compliance with his <laughs> dictates, with his mandates. Right. And I've taken to saying that that's what this bill does. It provides a private right of action where people can sue individuals and institutions um, for holding to a, a view of marriage that is a, a biblical view of marriage and say, you've somehow discriminated against me. So that even if an institution is able to protect themselves from that accusation say, no, we didn't discriminate against you. We just hold to um, what we've always held to, what we've always believed. We haven't changed our mind about this. For two centuries, we've said this is what marriage is. So, so we didn't discriminate against you. Even if you were to win in court under the Religious um, Freedom Restoration Act, RIFRA for short, you would still face costly litigation in order to right. defend what is a very reasonable, non-bigoted, um, historically <laughs> accurate view of what marriage is. Yeah, and the, so 
We're very pro- concerned about that. Though. Yeah. And the process becomes the punishment, too. And most schools Correct. do not have the capacity to fight back. And that's exactly what they know. And if the government sues you folks, uh, they've got unlimited cash to come after you. And that's what's so nefarious about this. It would seem to me that people of all swipes, I mean, people on both sides of the marriage issue would say, well, we don't think this is what the government's role should be in this. And let me just say this. You know, even as you talk about our our view of marriage and other people's view of marriage, the government has no business defining what marriage is anyway. In fact, we always tell people governments don't grant rights. They undergird rights you already have, and it's individual rights before uh, the the government powers. Well, then why are they involved in marriage? Well, they're involved in marriage because a man and a woman, it's the only relationship that can go to sleep tonight and wake up with a new citizen, and they don't want to raise your citizen. So they make you sign a contract for the good of the sociology of the culture called marriage. And that's the only reason the government should be involved. They're not defining what a good relationship is. By the way, I would say you do not want people on the hill defining what a good relationship is. That is the worst thing you can do. Their only role is, you know, they don't want to raise a potential citizen, and that's the only relationship that can have one. So if they can't limit themselves to that, they should get out of the whole business. Well, here we are on the other side of that. They're now granting rights and granting rights and granting rights. Well, what is that doing? They're pitting citizens against each other. They're starting to pit citizens against each other who have different views on these things. And that was what our founders said. No, let them work that out freely with each other in community. So you just pointed out that the the nefarious part of this is that now there's a practical way where they can start to sue or harass schools out of business. Um, I know churches are the last the last organization, but by the time you get to the churches, it'll be too late. Um, what are some other things you're seeing out there, whether it's culturally or legislatively, that we need to, you know, we need to be aware of this because we want our children to be well educated, but we also want to be open to educating whoever wants to come to our schools. Um, how, you know, what are, what are some other things that you're facing? Yeah, uh, I'm, <laughs> I I like the Marines because they have this identity that is they're they're few, the proud, the Marines. They they have this um, uh, motivation about them that they like to be the small group fighting tall odds. So when you okay. ask me what we're concerned about, <laughs> okay. I I take the Marines' view. You know, you you might have heard about the Marine. You know, they parachute in the middle of the enemy. The, right. the enemy's in front of them, beside them, behind them, and and their you know their reaction to that is, well, they can't get away from us now. You know, <laughs> they've got us surrounded. The, the enemy can't escape. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And I feel, I feel like that's what we're looking at as far as what the battlefield looks like. Is you know, with rapidly changing cultural definitions for so many things. Uh, about human sexuality and marriage and the role of parents and and raising their children and what does it mean to be a man and a woman i mean all of that plays out in culture and in law right, right. It, it you know we live in a democratic republic and so the people have a say in these things and uh, because we elect leaders they also have a say that doesn't always line up with what the majority wants and with those dynamics you know we see a a, a an executive branch that has redefined the term sex even um, outside of our historic understanding of it being male and female to to make sure that men and women are treated equally under the law to now meaning you can define your sex however you want. And so federal law is being rewritten um, with this new definition of maleness and femaleness. 
Uh, Title IX would be one of those things that has huge impacts in higher ed, um, schools that hold to traditional views of marriage and maleness and femaleness, men and women, biologically. Will, will their ability to educate college students be threatened? Uh, schools, if like what this, these two courts have held up as, uh, as tax exempt, meaning federal funding, would those schools, would any school be able to hold to these traditional definitions right. without losing their tax exempt status? Um, so we see a lot of these, you, you mentioned Virginia, you know, Virginia has um, um, created a civil right um, that extend that that increases the civil right to LGBTQ identities and inc- increased or expanded the idea of what a public accommodation is. So are our schools public accommodations or not? You, you mentioned we want to be a ministry to everybody. Mm-hmm. So if you bring students in that don't have direct attachment to a membership in a church, does that mean we're we're accommodating the public with education? And if so, how would the law apply? Um, to what um, Virginia has now said is discriminatory speech and behaviors if we won't um, accommodate an LGBTQ identity. So I I think I could go on and on and on. So many ways that we see the boundaries defined by cultural issues and one side no longer respecting tolerance for people who have held these views again for millennia. Here, let me close with this. Um, it's common in our line of work to hear um, they intend, you know, politicians intended protections for religious liberty to be a, sh- a shield, but religious people are using it as a sword. In other words, somehow we've become the aggressors. And what I always point out is we haven't changed our opinion on these right. things. We're not the ones that have changed. We've always believed these things. Two millennia, 2,000 years, this has been the definition of what it means to be a Christian. So who is really the one using the sword? A society exactly. that's changed their definitions of all these things or people who have held to these things for 2,000 years. Yeah. And so that's, I think, that's where the real battle lines are. And our schools are at the crossroads of that in our culture and society. Well, and one final thing, I mean, what what is something that we can do? Be, you know, obviously, we're praying about these things in our schools. Are that meaningful to us? Um, what are some of the things that that we can do right now? Or let, what's one last thing that you can share with our people? Um, because these issues are pertinent and, and we want to keep our schools open and available. Yeah, I, I, I have a few recommendations. I'll go through them quick. Live openly, authentically. We have to really take our belief in Christ and what scripture says out into the public square. And we have to do it boldly, even if it means some opposition, because studies show just talking about this will convince people that we're not the 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 devils or the the bigoted people or the monsters that we've been presented to be. We have to help protect our institutions. I I tell our churches and our schools consider joining a group like Alliance Defending Freedom. Like Greg, you and I are very familiar with the people. They're good people that care deeply about protecting our constitutional rights to religious liberty. And then you have to, if you're a school, determine how you're going to help people experiencing same-sex attraction or um, uh, gender uh, dysphoria, right? How are we going to truly help children, especially navigate these complex issues in our society in a way that says, we believe that the creator designed you in a good way and to live in that good way will contribute to your flourishing. And so we're going to have to maybe delve into topics that will offend our sense of modesty 
um, but but not at the expense of of chastity, right? We have to really teach God's good design in human sexuality and in marriage and in childbearing and rearing. All of those things are an essential mission for us. And so I think those are kind of the top three things that I would recommend to churches and schools in our cur- current cultural moment. Well, we do that and we will continue to do that and we will support uh, any of any organization that is willing to stand with us on the front lines. And that's why we are so proud to be associated with you. Is there, uh, can you give your website if people want to get to know you better? Sure. Yeah. We're the American Association of Christian Schools, AACS.org. And we have a link on there for our Washington office. And specifically, I would encourage you to sign up for our flyer. It's a once a week newsletter that talks about these issues at the intersection of education and public policy. Uh, family, uh, life, and religious liberty are our primary focuses as educators. And so AACS.org, Washington Flyer, sign up for it. We'd love to have you on our weekly mailing list to let you keep up with what we're doing in our office. Well, Jameson, it's great to be at work with you in Washington, and you have uh, helped our people. Uh, You've given us, again, a good sense of what the battle is all about and why it's so important to engage. So thanks again for being with us today. Thank you very much, Greg. Look forward to seeing you again. Thanks for tuning in today. To get to know our LCRLDC work better, check out our website at lcrlfreedom.org. Contained there are resources to empower your public square dynamic discipleship. Or check out our weekly Word from the Center opinion piece every Friday at facebook.com forward slash lcrlfreedom. Till next time, God bless you always. I'm Greg Seltz. Have a great week. You've been listening to Liberty Action Alert with Greg Seltz, Executive Director of the Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty in Washington, D.C. This program has been brought to you by the Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty. 